You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. I felt like I should do like a Halloween intro there, but by the time this releases, it'll be after (laughs) Halloween. So welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with Dr. Michaela O'Donnell about calling our theology of work and how the career landscape has changed in ways that impact us in holistic ways. But first, Holly, how are you this week? I am doing well. I'm well. I know we are recording this uh, just before it's gonna come out, like a couple of days before. So we're a little, mm-hmm. a little behind and getting excited for Halloween and yeah, working on some stuff. But yeah, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, looking forward to Halloween, like you like you mentioned there. And uh, it is we're recording this a little bit closer, so uh, but that's okay. These things happen. And I we I think it was like last episode of the episode before we talked about how ahead we were with the interviews. So I feel like that's fitting that you know, we're <laughs> cutting the intros a little bit shorter, um, a little closer. But that's okay. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing yeah. well. Well, I had a question for you. Uh, and these can be maybe mm-hmm. shorter ones because they're less profound, perhaps. But uh, what what is the f- your favorite job you've ever had? And it cannot be your current role or employer because I feel like that throws it off a little bit. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate that. It gives me an out to be able to not <laughs> have to right. say my yes. current employer. Yeah. Um, honestly, mm, oh, man, it's really hard. I'm saying two, but I'll still be short. Um, so when I grew up, my mom owned a toy shop in upstate New York, and huh. that was kind of the best job in the yeah. world to get to work in my mom's toy shop and like, you know, paint the windows and to like work at the cash register and like help her order stuff and give input on the toys and stickers and stuff she ordered. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Um, but I would say as I grew older, I worked at Starbucks for about five years through Mm. undergrad and some of grad school. And I really loved getting to to work at at Starbucks for as long as I did. I mean, I loved the colleagues that I got to work with. I loved the customers that came in. I loved like the creativity that went into making a lot of the drinks sometimes with some of the orders we got. And like being able to do like the signs and stuff with like, you know, the paint markers. And I, that was probably my favorite job, like adult job. But I mean, it is, I really can't deny how grateful and lucky I felt as a kid that my mom owned a toy shop. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun. But it's awesome. What about you? Yeah. I, uh, I'll say two as well. I guess, you know, I don't, I did, I like said, okay, it can't be current ones and all that. And I'll say, I'll, I'll kind of like maybe throw off all of like campus ministry stuff too, because those feel like kind of career type things. Mm-hmm. But I'll say I, uh, so partway through high school, I worked at a golf course as like the cart people, like the the dudes that like washed all the carts, which was always really fun because you found a bunch of free stuff in them all the time that people left. Um, so that oh was gosh, fun. Amazing. And you just got to, so you would like, we were also in charge of like refilling the the water stations that are like along the course. So you could just drive golf uh-huh. carts around the whole, uh-huh. the whole course. Um, so that was always really fun. Um, and I got that job with a couple of my good friends. So it would be, you know, we'd spend however long just riding around in golf carts and stuff like that. Um, did I, did I tell you? More That's... oversight in that job, but. Well, I actually, that was one of the other jobs that I got to do too, but I was like the beverage cart driver. Like I drove yeah, around I and I, like. <laughs> I have a big memory of us talking about that. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. I love that you've gotten to do something super similar too. That's so fun. Yeah. So that was definitely, that was probably the most fun that I had at a, at a mm-hmm. job. Um, but then uh, in in college, I uh, kind of worked my way up at a, a like one of the bookstores and I ended up being oh. the manager of like the, what we call the soft goods. So there was like, a, there was like a, a manager over everything, but then there was a manager who took care of all the textbooks. And then I was the manager over all the soft goods. So like t-shirts and uh, golf clubs and whatever, like all the random stuff mm-hmm. that had, that had Auburn stuff. I like ordered it all and like met with sales reps and like priced it and stuff. And then kind of like 
oversaw a lot of like the the cashiers and stuff like that and that job was really fun that's awesome just from like a like in college having some responsibility like learning how to do all of that um was all like really fun so i like that kind of stuff um Hmm. but yeah that's so cool i love that i did not know that about you with the bookstore piece that's pretty cool yeah Yeah. that's awesome but the reason i ask to segue mm-hmm. us, right, is today we talk with Dr. Michaela O'Donnell. And she has this new book that we're going to talk a lot about called Make Work Matter, Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing World. And I won't spend too long setting up uh, why I thought this was like, like I was really excited to have her on. And that maybe mm-hmm. seems like a strange yeah. fit. And I won't set that up too much because I know I talk about it in the episode. Um, but I'm curious what your kind of first thoughts were or uh, thoughts on the recording or, or anything like that, like when I first pitched it to you or anything like that. I thought the episode was phenomenal, so much so that like that night after we recorded the episode, I um, I always start off each of my classes with my, my doc students, like mm-hmm. with some kind of reflection or I read a little bit from a book that I'm reading or I do some kind of um, spiritual practice or something with them. And and, and this book was the one that I brought to the class and I was reading parts of it yeah. and we had this deep conversation about some of the things that I was reading. So I am just, I'm really excited for our listeners to get to listen to this one because I think yeah. it is relevant for any of us. Um, and she really does, yeah, talk. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it fits so well with the work that we're doing on CXMH, even if the title seems a little bit like, oh, that's that's a little different, you know? Yeah, yeah. But Talking about work, it's what, good. but yeah. 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 Yeah, but it matters, literally. And that's the <laughs> title of her book. So, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I am excited for folks to hear it too, and definitely recommend the book. We get into some of it as as we're talking, obviously, but I mean, it's a it's a you know forty minute interview or whatever, and this book is phenomenal. So definitely yeah. go check out the book if you say like, yeah, I definitely uh, this sounds like stuff that that I'm curious about and I want to hear more about and things like that. But other than that, we will get out of the way and let y'all hear our conversation with Dr. Michaela O'Donnell. All right, enjoy y'all. All right, today we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Michaela O'Donnell. She is the executive director of Fuller Seminary's Dupree Center, the Max Dupree Center for Leadership. She is an entrepreneur, a teacher, and a sought-after speaker and consultant who regularly presents on the topics of vocation, career, and leadership to religious, secular, academic, and lay audiences. She's also the author of the new book, Make Work Matter, Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing World. Dr. O'Donnell, how are you today? I am really, really good. It's good to be with you both. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, aside from that bio there, is there anything else that our audience should know about you? Oh, goodness. I'm a mother. I have two little kids, one um, almost six. She would say six and 11 twelfths, and the other um, two. So that occupies quite a bit of my work energy as well. Yeah, two, just the whole number. There's no uh, fractions in that one. Well, he, yeah, he's only, t- you know, actually, he started to say two and a half, but I think it's just because he wants a fraction. So I don't, I don't know if I'll do the yeah. math there. Yeah, two something. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I feel like two is a little young to to start calculating that way. I know a uh, little young. Three, yeah, my three year old doesn't have have any fractions yet, but I'm sure if if he had an older sibling, maybe he would. Yes. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for joining us. I gotta tell you, this book is uh, fantastic, and I will say, mm-hmm. you know, for folks listening uh, that say maybe this is like, what does a book about work? That's kind of a weird fit for a show about faith and mental health. I'll say mm-hmm. I I got a copy right. Uh, at, we get lots of things from publishers, and I thought this is interesting. So I started reading it, maybe, you know, not sure about the the show or, or the fit. And I, in my work, I work, a lot of my clients are college students, adolescents, uh, emerging adulthood, right? Kind of uh, like mm-hmm. 25, kind of this like quarter life crisis. And the more that I read, the more that I was like, absolutely, like these are the types of conversations that I'm navigating mm-hmm. with those clients in terms of how this impacts their mental health and their faith, mm-hmm. right? When we're getting it into like calling and things like that. And so I think actually it's extremely relevant. And I, I mean, I sent Holly picture after picture of stuff yeah. in the book that I was like, this part, this part. So hmm. uh, really excited to have you on. Yeah. Yeah. And as, I mean, just to piggybacking, I mean, Robert's talking about with a lot of his clients, but I know with students who I'm working mm-hmm. with as a professor, this is so relevant. And even, you know, we were just talking briefly before 
um, about, you know, I know this, this resonated so much with my grad school journey and doctoral coursework and journey. Mm -hmm. And anyways, it's just hear how much we love this book. And we're so happy to have you here with us today, Michaela. Well, thank you. That's, that's really generous. Yeah. I'll I'll just say to that, you know, it's people do say sometimes, well, I don't want to read a book about work. I don't want to think more about my work. And yet, um, these questions of meaning and how that plays out in work are really ripe uh, for the quarter life mm-hmm. crisis that you described, mm-hmm. Robert, for students, whether that's undergrad or grad student. But even beyond that, you know, data shows that people are making life transitions kind of like every 12 to 18 months now. And mm-hmm. then you throw the pace of world change on top of that. And we're just all feeling it and often trying to do this work, whether it's on the surface or not. So uh, yeah, this this book is birthed out of a lot of the kind of conversations that you two just described. Yeah. Well, that's kind of our first question, right? Is is the backstory to this? So, mm-hmm. how do you? I'm, I mean, I'm, I assume that you didn't set out and say, "I'm going to write a book about work and calling," right? So, how do you, in leadership and uh, entrepreneurship, I, I can't say that word. I don't know why not. Nobody um, can, Robert. <laughs> just join the club. I have no idea. Um, but <laughs> like throughout all of that, how do you end up at a spot where you say, "Okay, actually, I'm going to write a book about work and calling." Yeah, that's a great question. I I am as surprised as anybody that I am talking to people about their work as part of my work. That's not something I thought that I would do. Um, I'll I'll give you the the short to medium version. In many ways, this is, you know, Holly and Robert, this is a book to myself 15 years ago. It's a a book to myself 10 years ago. Mm. It's a book to myself five years ago, right? It's kind of the, the, all the advice I wish I'd had and the real talk about this stuff. I graduated my master's program in the middle of the Great Recession. So it took about five seconds to realize that a master's in theology was not a very marketable skill. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness, I was brand, brand, brand new married as in like a few months. And he, lucky, lucky me, Dan, my husband had one of these degrees too. And so there we were newly minted with our degrees and kind of like, what are we going to do? How are we actually going to pay our rent? And so this questions of, whoa, we studied to do this and uh, let's throw the calling word in there. Oh, I feel called to do this, but whoa, that doesn't match my lived experience at all. What might we do? How are we going to figure this out? Many, many years, uh, our own professional journey started to kind of be about that, figuring that out. Along the way, after we had started a business and uh, gosh, I think I started the PhD before, yeah, before our first kid, I realized I wanted to ask some of these questions uh, with a larger lens and thinking about how could the church be helpful in this space. And so I went back, I did a PhD in practical theology at Fuller Seminary. Um, And the real crux for this book came in a moment where I realized that I was pregnant with my first daughter and I was running the business full time. I was getting doing my PhD full time. And here I was pregnant. And finally, even for my Enneagram seven self, I'm like, this is too much. <laughs> this is too much. We've hit the limit. And so I walked into my advisor's you know, office and said, I'm, I'm about to be done with the PhD. It's, you know, obviously we're excited to have a family. The business uh, is what's paying the bills and we like it. And the school has got to go. And he gave me an encouragement that that's really foundational to this work and really a lot of the work I do with people at the Dupree Center in general. And that was see if you can make them the same thing. See if you can make your studies and your work the same thing. I had no idea what that meant, but it would be the start of trying to figure out how people made their way in a changing world of work and what that had to do, if anything, with vocation. The last part of the short to medium version is that after I got done with all that dissertation research, I came to work at the Dupree Center for Leadership, not as the executive director yet, but to see if I could convert all that doctoral work into like real resources for real people. And so uh, my team and I have been working that stuff out over the last couple of years in a program. Um, and so the what comes in this book is the fruit of so many of those real conversations and so many of the oh, I thought this was going to work and it didn't. Um, so that is that is the backstory of how I got to be somebody who talks to people about their work. Yeah. So I, I loved how you explained the backstory there of the book. And just to nod to a couple of things that you had mentioned there, Michaela, you, you talked about like 
you know, your advisor, your supervisor, and like through your doctoral program, I loved the way that you had a mentor who could kind of guide you to be thinking about these two things together, which I know isn't always the case to have, you know, mentors or, or, or guides to kind of help us think through that. And I, I loved that. And, um, and I know that we mentioned this like just before we started recording, like you nodded as well to, you know, to becoming a, a mother during your PhD program. And mm-hmm. gosh, that just that that journey of what you share about what that was like for you resonates so much with me as I was like reading through your book. Like I'm looking at it right now where it was like underlined with like big capital like this and oh my gosh, mm-hmm. and like big um, stars. I just, that journey, um, really resonated. So I appreciated how you articulated that so, so well. So thank you for explaining a bit about the backstory and just like that changing world of work that we are all navigating and moving through. And, you know, that, that you do highlight within this book, you do talk a bit, like just kind of building on that piece around the changing world of work, um, you do write about how we are still trying to use old tools for a new world. And we will talk a little bit about those new tools, but but you even write at one point, in order to build a new toolkit, we have to start with naming why the old one no longer works. The yeah. last thing we want to do is replace outdated tools with unhelpful ones. So would you mind explaining a bit about those those types of changes that have happened, that have really made it a new world, that we can yeah. no longer use these old tools? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, and, I, you know, there's obviously some variants here based on context and industry. And even as you just sort of highlighted, Holly, a sociocultural location, right? Um, but I think a lot of the changes best... Uh, identified in a story. It's actually a story I tell in the book, um, but I'll, I'll tell it here because I think it's helpful and then unpack a few of these things. I had a friend who um, was uh, in med school and he actually, he was toward the end of med school by the time I heard the story, but he told me that on the first day of class, the dean walked into the room and said, by the time you leave med school, 75% of what we teach you is going to be irrelevant because things are going to be changed. The issue is, the problem is, we don't know which 75% it's going to be. And therefore, we've got to teach you what we know. We got to go for it anyway. Mm -hmm. And that statement, I think, is, or that story is really indicative of what's underneath so much of the, um, the ways this comes out for us. And that is just that the world is accelerating. It's changing. Technology and access to information and, you know, certain industries being sort of I don't know, almost out of date now and others emerging overnight. I mean, think about, you know, Mm -hmm. how often three years ago did you really get on a Zoom call, right? And now how often are you on Zoom calls, right? So you have Mm -hmm. this whole, this whole shift that's happened. Um, and underneath it is that, that it are big forces like globalization, like, um, accelerated technology. But to say, okay, globalization and accelerated technology, that doesn't really yet land in our everyday experience. It's not until we think, you know, uh, let's talk about um, the shift in where people work, right? So um, that's pretty much uh, something that's been in motion for a bit, but really induced by the pandemic. How many major companies, you look at Amazon, you look at Google, you look at Twitter, who have said, okay, we're going to actually just do permanent work from home now. Um, and some of that is driven by um, industries able to save costs on not having people in physical buildings. And other times it's driven by employees saying, you know, I don't want to be in a two hour commute where I'm trying to listen to podcasts, even though they're wonderful and do like breath (laughs) meditations to just deal with the fact that I'm, you know, in rage traffic. So, I mean, you know, so where people work. Um, I do also think that you know, what people work on is changing, what we deem as necessary mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in functioning. And I won't go into a tons of specifics there. But again, the problem is that we can't necessarily predict what the world's going to look like five years from now, only that it's going to be probably pretty different than it is right now. And this sets up um, our educational years, right? And I'm, I'm pro-teacher. Mm-hmm. I, I am an educator. I, you know, I love educators. And I love educational systems, but it's really almost impossible to educate 
toward the future in light of what I just described. So that yeah. makes that, that I mean that makes the the you know kind of skills for a changing world of work skills that help us deal with change even more than they are you know hard skills. So you know can you um, adapt? Can you ha- deal with failure and setback? Can you um, learn to converse and really work effectively in an increasingly diversified workforce? Right, all of these different things become at the core of what it means. Uh, to thrive. And, and this now we're going into your two's territory, right? What does it mean to actually thrive or flourish? Um, but that's not that that's almost impossible to be built into the system. So you have this inevitable tension that leads to things like quarter life crisis or midlife crisis, or, you know, check any of the years in between. Yeah, no, that's, that's so good. And it's so helpful how you are helping us to think through like all of those changes and, and how to, I mean, I, I mean, in some ways, like how to prepare for them and how to navigate them. But I love that story. I mean, so glad that you brought that up, that story about um, your friend Nathan and, you know, the mm. 25% of the things that he will actually learn that, you know, he'll be able to move, continue forward with, but like the 75%, like, you know, it's not re- relevant. And I feel mm-hmm. like that there is such a tension for educators in trying to think about that because we do we do want to be able to equip our students well um, with the best information, but this focus on change and how to navigate change and how to do it in such a way that doesn't burn us out. I mean, just before that story where you're talking about Nathan and how such a, a large proportion of you know what he learns is going to change, I guess, by the time he's in practice, you know, just before that, you were talking in this book about how to navigate that change with dynamic stability and that but hustling harder mm-hmm. and moving faster and go 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 just to keep up with all that change isn't necessarily sustainable and so thinking through how do we then and you have the analogy of the kayaking which you know if you want you can dive into a little bit more but but thinking through like how we 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 paddle faster to navigate that change by embracing those quicker cycles of action and reflection, and then mm-hmm. prioritizing the skills that you outline within this book um, that are tied to helping us deal with these dynamic and changing experiences in the dynamic and changing world around us that include resilience and creativity and empathy and risk-taking and reflection. Like, you know, how we embody those and learn those mm-hmm. is, oh man, it's so mm-hmm. tricky. And then how we teach those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I did, I just, I think I really wanted to pull out and emphasize that piece about the 25 and 75%. And then just what you were saying about the navigating change and, and what's required of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And I think there's a couple layers here. Um, I've seen over the last couple of years, there's been here and there um, kind of an op-ed piece, New York times Atlantic, it's talking about our collective relationship to work. And I've been very struck by the images that have come out of a couple of pieces in more or less that say that, you know, we have in American society deemed work as a place where we're going to get primary identity, um, you know, information about ourselves and significance. Okay. And that is a lot of pressure to put on work. Um, I don't know if that actually um, mm-hmm. works, if you will. So um, we, we, yeah, and we treat work like our, our our vehicle for meaning, right? And when, and that's not just because individually we don't know where to look, but that that's kind of how we've evolved as a society. And um, I'll, I'll explain a little more, and I'll loop it back to what you were saying, Holly. You know, for the most for most of human history, work has had a much more utilitarian um, function, right? It's the thing we do to Mm. pay the bills and to feed the people and to, you know, have shelter and and just really basics. And I'm not saying that people didn't like work when it was, you know, purely utilitarian and that in many cases, work still serves a very utilitarian nature. Um, And to, you know, have a conversation about wanting work to matter is um, in many ways a privileged conversation. So I think just naming that. And when that 
when we are set up to think, okay, our work is the place where we're going to get the significance and learn about ourselves and, and do all that stuff. And then, and then we can't keep up. And then the change makes us feel like we just got sat down in a chair and where it feels like other people are getting going and we're not, it becomes very, very hard and very, very disorienting. And, um, I think just that is why it's like, okay, and then we got to hustle and we got to keep up because the implicit message is if work is a place for our significance, then if we do more of it, that should be more significant, right? That's kind of the implicit message that underlines all that. Mm -hmm. So there's a level here of just stripping all that back, all that back and saying, yeah, you know, we're whole people who live whole lives. And yeah, the lady who talks about work is now telling us that we don't just, it's not, we don't just find meaning in work. It's the, what about the rest of life? Starting with rest, starting with, you know, relationships and community mm -hmm. and the things we do yeah. um, in, in everyday life. Now, with all that said, that lets us go back to work and with a, just a bit of a different mindset. Like, okay, Oh, we can take a deep breath. It doesn't need to be the end all be all. It's not trying to, you know, be our one mark of significance in the world. And then that allows us to, you know, use the the rapid analogy, which is something from the book. It allows us to approach the rapids differently, right? We're sort of mm -hmm. sitting there with a bit more of a, it's like, okay, a bit more of a calm within the storm, a bit more of a peace as we make our way down rather than in a feeling of, anxiety of, oh my goodness, this isn't going to happen. Oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. I'm all alone. X, you know, all the X, Y, and Zs that come up. And that's a mind, mindset shift, but it's not until that mindset shift, you know, kind of we get going on that, that we're able to talk about things like dynamic stability and creativity and resilience. Because if we talk about them in the hustle up, hustle harder, make it happen, it just becomes one more thing to do um, rather than a reframe that actually lets us step out of some of the one more things to do. Oh, that's yeah. so good. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you, you do list, you list, and we've, we've touched on uh, a little bit there, this, this idea of like kayaking or canoeing or whatever down the rapids, I think it was kayaking. Um, I don't know. I was picturing it. But you list these four big unspokens that informally govern our new world of work. And I thought those were helpful. Um, so I'm going to say those real quick. And then there's one that I want to like particularly kind of grab onto. And again, we've touched on some of them, right? But number one is grab a paddle because we've traded static career paths for dynamic ones, which you alluded to in terms of where do we work, people changing, uh, mm -hmm. having life changes, you know, way more often. Two, that I think we were just talking about, right? Prepare to be unprepared because change is our new constant companion. Uh, I'm going to skip to four because I want to come back to three. Number four mm -hmm. is you may need to reroute or reconstruct the very river you travel down, which again is, is some of that like kind of adapting. But number three, I wanted to, to really circle back on because you talk about navigating your own way forward because no one else is taking responsibility for where you go. And yeah. I, I want to highlight that one because so I want to read just one quick little snippet that you write about in that in that chunk. You write, increasingly, individuals are responsible for navigating their own way forward, whether that includes learning new skills or cultivating a diverse work portfolio or even more practical considerations such as health insurance and retirement. Individuals are doing the work that systems used to do. We need to name this as the mental, mentally demanding reality that it is. So I, I wanted to I bring had that, that underlined too, friend, yeah, by the I way. <laughs> um, I wanted to bring that up because I think that makes sense of uh, kind of this new phrase of like adulting and how mm -hmm. uh, so many like maybe millennials and Gen Z and feel like we have no idea what we're doing, which maybe also was true, you know, generations ago when you're kind of freshly off into the workforce. But it seems bigger than that in terms of like, Right. So my wife and I are, okay, we have to try and figure out health insurance plans because neither of our workplaces uh, do that. Right. And mm -hmm. what about life insurance and all that, you know, like just all these things that we kind of have no clue. And obviously we're like figuring them out as we go. So, you know, nobody sent me an email on health insurance, but just that idea, it, it, to me, that speaks to this idea of like why adulting has become a phrase that means like, all the stuff that we have no idea what to do with, right? And it is very like mentally demanding, I think. Whereas before, mm -hmm. previously, maybe like jobs did that for you. Or I even look at like the publishing industry, right? Where 
okay, now each author has to like, okay, I have to build a platform and Mm -hmm. create a launch team and all that, right? And you obviously, you just are releasing a book uh, and Holly is in the process of releasing a book in February. Mm -hmm. So y'all know this, right? But so much of that seems like it would have been on the publisher to advertise and stuff like that. 10 years ago, right? So like just that shift, I think was like a really important one that I thought, oh, right, this makes sense. This may, this puts language to something that I think a lot of us kind of feel. Yeah, Robert, that's a, thank you for bringing that up. And um, yeah, I, even as you read it, I know I wrote it, but I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm feeling that. Like, <laughs> yes. that means you wrote something good. Yes, yes. right. Um, <laughs> oh my like, God. I was reading it and you were like, ugh, what is this? Ugh, so, gross, yeah. gross. Um, you know, I think that this, Yeah, I think, and and I think that it can be too easy to say, yeah, you know, I'm at the very top of millennials. So I like, you know, uh, I I do resonate with many of the messages that come at millennials, and then I'm at the very top. So there's some messages Mm -hmm. that feel more relevant for millennials that come after me and Gen Zers. And I think one of the, one of the pieces that's least helpful is this idea that, you know, younger people are kind of entitled and or just, you know, kind of aren't putting in the time. And, in light of what you just explained, Robert, it's like, well, actually, we're in a whole different world. This is a whole yeah. different thing. Adulting yeah. looks very, very different. I mean, you can, I don't have the stats in front of me, but you can look at the, you know, ages people start to have kids now versus when they did 30 years ago. And the, you know, median age has risen. Let's say it's probably risen about five years. Don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere around there. And, you know, people change jobs somewhere between 11 and 17 times now. And if you go back 30 or 40 years, that number is probably exponentially lower if they even tracked it, right? And so you get all these, uh, built-in complexities that are coming in 20s and 30s, which it, which are exactly the things that you name, making sense of, okay, how do I get healthcare? Okay, I've got to get a job in these seven different ways and my, you know, my profiles all got to match. And there's just, there's a lot happening there at the same time that we're doing deep work to make sense of who we are in this world, right? Like the, what's my purpose and where do I belong and what am I supposed to do kind of stuff. So making sense of those questions when things around you feel a bit more static is is one version. Trying to make sense of those questions when everything around you is in motion and you yourself are tasked with many of the pieces to put it all together, I actually think that's too much. I think it's too much for brains to handle. And I think it's, you know, I think it's why like burnout's on the rise and there's an epidemic of exhaustion. And, uh, and, and a lot of this comes from, well, there's a bunch of forces. I'll just name one. And that's actually, um, what's called the democratization of knowledge. So, you know, you know, 50 years ago, you used publishing as an example, Robert, there were certain sort of pillars of power that held information, they held decisions, they held money, and therefore access. And those pillars still exist today um, in different forms, but increasingly information and therefore access and oftentimes not always money is much more dispersed. And so it is you're not necessarily as one individual trying to find your way and latch on to one of these major power sources, but you're trying to um, make some of that happen from your own sphere and web toward other people. That That's just a very different thing. And um, I don't know that we have all the groundworks and the frameworks laid for that. Um, so when people say, yeah, adulting's hard, like, yes, it is. It's very, very hard. And how do you how do how does it become less hard? Um, I actually think that you know the work that you two do is critical here. I think um, the mental health conversation we're just at the start of that being uh, probably uh, a leading conversation in in many spheres, including work, in the next decade mm-hmm. or two. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think we have to name like it's it's actually too much. And what are we going to do about that? And you know, then then we take into okay that there's you know we're people of faith. Like I'm a I'm a practical theologian in the Christian faith. And so, what does my faith say about this? What does my faith say about all this adulting and all these have tos and all this hustling? 
And and then you unpack a whole nother layer of things, right? Which we can either go into or not. Um, but just to empathize and say, yeah, it's very hard. We're living in a, a very particular and peculiar time with all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to uh, real quick there, you talked about kind of the shift away from kind of like classic power structures. And I do want to make a note that obviously that comes with the challenges like we're talking about, but you also mentioned in the book that that, that isn't a like entirely bad thing, given that right. those, those power systems and those um, escalators, I think you talked about at one point, only yep. went mm-hmm. so high for certain people. Uh, yep. And so a lot of kind of the rearranging is a good thing in terms of not just like one people group having all the power and, and all that type of stuff. So uh, just to name that, like there's there's benefits to that along with a lot of these challenges. Yeah. Thanks for naming that. Let, let me also just be explicitly clear there. Wherever there is challenge, there is also opportunity. And I think that a disbursement of power is a very, very holy move. I really do. And mm. how, but then as individuals, are we then all these little agents of, you know, kind of that stuff, platform, use word platform, are we all a bunch of little platforms and brands trying to make our way professionally through the world? I don't know yet. I think that that's going to have to play itself out a little bit. And I'm really curious about that. Um, but there are a lot of upsides and we're, and I think we're hearing it. We're hearing, you know, mains in the mainstream spaces, we're starting to hear from you know, many more voices that have been historically marginalized or relegated to the sidelines in favor of those centralized power systems. And so there is there is opportunity here at the same time as it yeah. comes in sort of a taxing process for us as individuals. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I appreciate you articulating that. And I did, I loved that analogy with the escalators and like saying like some are breaking down and some are, you know, going off in this other direction and like just how you articulated the various movements, I think was really helpful. Um, So one thing that I would love to talk a little bit about too is, is about this idea of calling because it's certainly something that, you know, I, I see among my college students who I teach or the grad students who I'm doing work with um, certainly my doctoral students, you know, are uh, heavily motivated to live out and do the research that they're doing with this idea of calling. And even with my colleagues and friends, like in their, you know, well into their 30s that that they're um, talking about this term. I've also ha- heard a colleague on campus before at Baylor who, you know, he does kind of poke at this term around calling and vocation, mm-hmm. uh, in particular as it relates to you know, folks with like varying abilities and like what does calling look like for varying abilities and things like that. So anyways, all that set said, I just want to talk a little bit about calling and get a sense from you about what is it that we get wrong about this term currently and how does it, how does that then impact us as we try to find our calling or vocation or whatever that word might be or way that we go about doing that? Yeah, it's great. It sounds like I would like your colleague. Um, I, you know, I <laughs> many people people are either calling is one of those words, right? It's like people are like, yes, I I've got a calling, and I want to dis- I want to find my calling, and I want to live out my calling. Or people are understandably jaded, and they're like, stop using that <laughs> word, like yeah. stop using the mm-hmm. calling word. So I think, like, I think personally, at first, it's just important to like, you know, kind of recognize in each of us, like, what is like. What does that word bring up? Like, what what does that mean? What why might that word bring up so many things? I mean, there's lots of assumptions we could make, but we won't make them for every person. So the first thing I'll say is I know that calling is a loaded term for so many of us, and uh, yet I, I think it's an important one, and it's why I use it. Um, I, I think that we're what we get wrong. I think we're living in a lot of the a lot of things that actually aren't very helpful. And I might even say they're not even very biblical. And if I was going to sum it up in one quick one, it's just that we have really equated calling with a sense of paid work. That's like the container that we're putting calling in. And I mean, to put it, you know, in, in one little sentence, capitalism was really never meant to be our vehicle for calling. That's not, those aren't, (laughs) <laughs> I highlighted and underlined mm-hmm. and said that like that mm-hmm. phrase in the book. I was like, yes, 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 yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, right. And it, 
it's like, wait a minute, how did how did we? And there is a long history of how that came to be. the The short version of that is that you know, in the Reformation period, this is Martin Luther, John Calvin, all those people. They're doing their best and actually some really liberating at the time work in um, in your in Europe to say, hey, wait a minute. Um, calling is not what you think it is, people of their time, right? They're sort of doing the same, they're having the same conversation that we're having right this second. And they're speaking to a lineage of, you know, in the early church, a calling really just meant to belong to Christ. That's what it meant to have a calling. And then when Christianity became more of the norm and it wasn't as, you know, risky to be a Christian, there's this whole group of people that were like, we got to recover that scandalous nature of calling, right? You get the rise in monasticism, people going out to the the desert, I might say this is the start of professional Christians, if you will. And then that's when Martin mm-hmm. Luther and contemporaries are like, wait a minute, it's not, it's not just the people who are out in the desert who have, you know, spiritually significant work. God, God is, you know, calling all of us. And Luther comes up with this framework and he says, okay, to everybody, you know, you kind of, you owe your faith and in, in to God. And here on earth, you owe loving service to your neighbors through your station, which we're going to you know, think of as a vocation. And that was really liberating. All of a sudden, the person who was the blacksmith or you know, baked bread had a spiritually significant work. Wow, that's, that's really liberating. Again, um, the problem is then you go into industrialization and people moving to cities and towns for jobs, no more of an agrarian culture. And today we're in something that people would call the information age. People might have 11 to 17 jobs throughout the course of their lifetime. They might be doing three things at any given time. They might, you know, host a podcast that they love, but isn't their primary work, right? You just you got all these different recipes. And the last significant theology of calling work that we've done as Protestants is still in the Reformation. So we're still holding on to that idea that our work is the place for our calling. And that's problematic. And that's where you get into all the unmet expectations. And again, that's, I think it's morphed into a pretty privileged conversation, given even what your colleague um, at Baylor uh, says, Holly. And I think if, again, just to strip it all down, calling is a biblical idea. And at the center of things, like we're called to belong, called to belong to Jesus, called to participate in God's work of redemption and restoration, called to create, right? This is Genesis one stuff um, in, you know, in with our neighbor in mind. And then I do think whether it's Mary or Moses or Esther, people are, are called to particulars, you know, particular places and situations, moments, roles, work, um, which sometimes takes the shape of paid work and a job. But those particulars are really you know, sort of that most outer layer with all those other things I just named kind of nested within. Um, and it's actually been helpful for me to think about calling like a set of nesting dolls where that innermost doll is the call to belong. The next one out is the call to participate in redemption and then the call to create. And then lastly, the thing that we usually run to and only talk about with calling um, is the call to particulars. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, that's so good. Yeah. So I know, uh, obviously, if we've talked about a lot of the the changes that have happened to the current terrain, uh, some restructuring around how we understand calling and things like that, right? I think the the kind of obvious question is like, where do we go from here? Yeah. The new tools, the new roads, things like that, um, to kind of mix metaphors. And uh, I know we won't go all the way in depth into all of those. If if listeners, if you say like, oh yes, I want like a really long unpacking of all, not really long, but a like a good unpacking of all of this, that's, you can go pick, pick up the book. Um, but I, I would love, you know, you have kind of the, these four pillars of, uh, what you call, oh, dang it. I'm going to have to say it again. The entrepreneurial <laughs> way. Dang it. You I'm did gonna, it. You did I'm it. You did it. Myself later. You did. Um, can you friend. talk us through uh, like those, those four things, just like a, a brief overview for someone that says, okay, I, I agree with all this. What do, what, what then do I do if I say this all makes sense, right? Like what, what would be the way forward? Yeah, thanks for that. And yes, entrepreneurial is a hard word to say. It is even harder to spell. I, I still can't spell it, and it's like all you know in the book. So I'll just just with you on that one. Um, I, you know, 
entrepreneur is like creative, is like calling, is like leader. Some of those words where we either opt in or opt out. And most people I know are like, I'm not an entrepreneur. That's not me. And I, I am on a single woman mission to help people understand that at the very core of what entrepreneurs do, they, you know, they notice opportunity. They're able to like take the resources that are at their disposal or within arm's reach and add value in light of that opportunity. And they're usually doing this in the face of some sort of risk. So being able to take risk and notice opportunity and create value. And that I would just love a whole lot more Christian people who are who think that they actually can um, contribute value in the face of needs and opportunities and can take risks. That's why I'm kind of on that mission. Um, let me just talk about I think where it all starts. And this is this um, came up actually in the research I did in my dissertation that then morphed into many conversations. And you know I asked people four questions. I, I still ask people these four questions because I think it's fascinating. I ask people, how have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure? What practices have moved you towards success? And what practices have helped you deal with failure? Mm. And one of the things that's you know very, very interesting to me and was heartening to me is that among the practices that help people in, in originally these entrepreneurs I studied, but really just you know human people, um, what helped them move towards success and deal with failure was the practice of empathy. And huh. yeah, and it wasn't just like, oh, manufactured empathy. It was something that I like to, I've come to call practicing empathy along the way. And mm. yeah, just kind of like you're kind of going along life, doing your stuff, doing your work, and you're able to be interrupted by other people. You're able to notice needs and decide that you should be a person who joins people who are in need. And oh, by the way, recognize that you're a person who's in need and let other people join you. And that the the basis for doing the, I am convinced actually, that the very basis for doing the meaningful work that we crave, whether that's in our paid job, in relationships, in school, in times of transition, can always benefit from starting with empathy. And my image for this is actually the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, you've got without describe the goods and, and why the Good Samaritan is a story that most people know. Most people could tell you the Good Samaritan if they're Christian people. They might not get every detail right, but this is like Sunday School 101, Christianity 101. And you know, there's a there's a couple of people in the story who you know, there's a hurt man on the side of the road, and a couple of people who pass by, and we could go into a bunch of thoughts about why they pass by, but right now I'm really interested in the guy who stops. And presumably this guy who, the good Samaritan, he's on a road, he's traveling, he's going from point A to point B. And yet he stops, yet he notices, yet he says, hey, what if I, you know, you might, e might even go into imagination. What if I help this guy? What if we, you know, if I put him on my donkey, oh, we're probably going to be going a bit slower. It's kind of a dangerous road. You know, I think it's the right thing to do. Let's do it anyway. And Wherever he was going, like that is that is probably the most meaningful work that he did that day, right? Was, was stop okay. and help, and and who knows? Who knows what he got out of that, and how it reshaped him? And you know, he's in this kind of now financial contract with the innkeeper at the end of the story, but practicing empathy along the way and letting that empathy be the seed for any kind of imagining of what we might do for all the risk that we that we decide are worth taking. And for the reflection that is necessary in order to make the meaning that we crave so much. Goodness. I love all so of that. Good. I yeah, it's so good. And and I think you are a thousand percent right about the importance of empathy and just the role that it has in uh doing good, meaningful work and just Oh my gosh, I could go on about that in particular forever, but I know that we are getting pretty close to time. And so, so what I what, one thing that we do love to do on this show, especially when we bring on 
you know, researchers and authors and advocates who have been doing so much work at this intersection or somewhere kind of along the spectrum of the intersection of faith and mental health, um, mm-hmm. is we really love to ask folks what the hope is for the work that they do. I mean, you have poured so much of who you are and your journey and what you've learned into this book. Um, and so I'd be really curious to hear what what is your hope for this book as it is launched out into the world? Such a great question. I bet that's an encouraging practice to ask hope after hope after hope. So thank you for asking mm. me that question. Yeah. You know, I think a couple hopes. I had somebody text me, somebody, there's like this thing with my book. It was supposed to go out one day. It's going out a different day. Somehow some mm-hmm. copies snuck out into the world. I saw that and on yes, Instagram. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and, one of the, and one of the people who, who it snuck out into the world to um, sent me an email. And the email said, you know, I was... I I read. I feel like I'm not alone. I feel like like wow. I feel like other people get this. And so, number one, I would hope that people read this book and they feel like they're not alone. Um, number two, um, somebody else said, "I feel like you're giving me a space to name some of the anxieties that I have within me, and I haven't actually said out loud." And I would. I hope that it's a space to do like work that you don't always get to do because I am convinced that inner work and the really deep inner work that God invites us to sets the stage for any external, you know, the external mm-hmm. work that we would do in the world. Mm-hmm. So my hope is that people feel like they're not alone. My hope is that, um, you know, people feel like they've got the space to do the work. And then I really do. Like I, it, I believe that everybody is built creative and with imaginations. And I think that that is wired into who we are. And so I think going through that deep work gets us closer to those places of creative confidence and imaginative possibility. And so my hope would be that as people go through the book, they felt kind of, they feel sent, they feel sent into wherever God has them. Um, yeah, to, to do to do whatever it is, like literally that day. So in the very, very basic ways, I want people to feel equipped. Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Mm. Well, listener, if you want to connect with Dr. O'Donnell, you can find her on Instagram at Michaela.O'Donnell. If you want to connect with the Dupree Center for Leadership, you can do that at Dupree.org or on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Dupree Center. You can also buy this new book. It comes out November 9th, Make Work Matter, Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing World. You can get that wherever you get books, and we will link all of that in the show notes. If you want to connect with Holly, you can do that at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Michaela, thank you so, so much for joining us today and talking us through some of this. I, I love this book. Hopefully, I think people can yeah. hear that. Uh, yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners today? Well, I really, I just want to say thank you to you both. You, you know, you're doing fantastic work and I really appreciate the chance to have this conversation. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com.